Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke and I'm here today in the studio with Iceland Review contributing writer Beth Rogers. Today we are going to be taking a look at her most recent piece for the magazine, Chill and Grill, Salt and Sour, Nordic Dishes at Thoreblot. In the rhythmic flow of seasons over the stony Icelandic landscape, where the North Atlantic winds carry tales of resilience and the terrain demands a symbiotic dance with nature, a culinary legacy has emerged, a testament to tenacious farmers, brave fishermen, and the profound respect for the resources that grace their doorsteps. A good Icelandic meal is all about finding stories, says Gunnar Karl Gislason, head chef at the award-winning restaurant Del. As he explains in his booming voice, what were Vikings using before they got the idea of taking seawater and reducing it to salt? First of all, they probably didn't have that much wood, he continues. So it wouldn't make sense to boil seawater. What they did was to take seaweed and dry it over the open fire. So they would use that instead of salt. These are the kind of stories I've been reading, influencing what we've been using and doing at Dill. We're just trying to find out how people survived in Iceland. What were they doing? And why are we not doing those things anymore? Some things I absolutely understand why. They're just not that delicious. But some are amazing. It's not often you hear the head chef of an illustrious restaurant admit that something is just not that delicious. But that's Iceland for you. The people are practical, diligent, and have always made the best of what they can get. As they say, birds don't fly into your mouth already roasted. The evolving narrative of Icelandic cuisine extends beyond the survivalist ethos of yesteryear. Today, as chefs like Gunnar Karl meticulously place together the puzzle of the past, they contribute to a modern gastronomic renaissance, one that not only honors tradition, but also paves the way for a vibrant future. As the seasons turn, so too does the menu at places like Dill, where the past and the present converge in a symphony of flavors, inviting diners to embark on a journey through time with each exquisitely crafted bite. In this arctic haven, where the pulse of nature sets the rhythm for life, Icelandic food history is a living tableau, a narrative of adaptation, resilience, and the continuous exploration of culinary possibilities. If we're looking for a story, we can begin in approximately 870 CE with the settlement of Iceland. Early Icelanders arrived into the quiet embrace of a land forested from the mountains to the shore, according to the earliest written descriptions of the settlement, which date to the 12th century. Together they built Iceland's humble farmlands, recreating the bountiful herds of livestock which would sustain the first generations in houses made of sod and covered with long grasses. In the summer, the foraging began, a ritual where the bounties of the land were either savored immediately or meticulously preserved and strategically stocked in the pantry to unveil during the winter. In the coldest months, the family would find shelter in their simple homes as frost-kissed winds whispered secrets among the rolling hills, telling stories that would weave the fabric of a simpler time. Home life was defined by the crackling warmth of the hearth 
the rhythmic clattering of a wooden spoon against the pot, and the simple dishes of meat and fish accompanied by cheese, butter, and beer. These were not yet times of culinary experimentation. Instead, a meal was meant to fill the bellies of those huddling around the fire until it was time to venture out into the tingling, crunching snow, crowned with a low, dim sky, to check on the animals in their pens and sheds once more. Food was required to stick to your ribs rather than to delight your palate. As the days of winter dragged on, making Icelanders look out their windows and sigh with resignation, the people created another feast in the lull formed after the Christmas holidays. To liven winter's chill with good beer, meat and bread, Icelanders resurrected the ancient tradition of Thorablot, the Feast of Thore, from mid-January to mid-February. The tradition of Thorablot has its roots in the ancient Norse calendar and early Icelandic culture. The month of Thore was historically considered a time of hardship and scarcity in Iceland, as it marked the coldest and darkest part of winter. Its revival in the 19th and 20th centuries aimed to reconnect with and celebrate Iceland's cultural and culinary heritage. It is a feast meant to recall Thoresnarsson, king of Kainland. According to Orkneinga saga, an 11th century king's saga, Thore's people, the Kainz, offered a sacrifice to Thore at this time of year. The name of the festival could also be a reference to Thor, the Norse god of thunder and rain. Surprisingly, the first modern-day Thorablot didn't even reach Iceland's shores. It was celebrated by a group of Icelandic students in Copenhagen in 1873. Not only were they striving for a reason to throw a good party in a typically bleak time of year, they also wanted to recall what they considered a golden age of Iceland, in a time when many countries were caught in the grip of a great romantic spirit, composing poems and creating art to exalt an epic past. A midwinter celebration was the perfect way to glorify Icelandic culture in a time when the people were arguing passionately for the creation of an independent Iceland, no longer a colony of Denmark. Even in the uncomplicated language of the earliest Icelandic stories, the authors spared a few words for feasts and food. A folkloric tale of Thor called Thrimskvida, dating to at least the 12th century, tells of the hilarious hijinks that ensue when Thor loses his hammer and must disguise himself as the goddess Freya in full wedding attire to trick the thief and retrieve his power. At the ensuing feast, Thor alone ate an ox and ate salmon, all the dainties as well that were set for the women, and drank Sif's mate three turns of mead. Though Thrymskvida is meant to be more whimsical and entertaining than the average historical document, the scene shows a preference for plenty of meat and alcohol in the Nordic diet of old, even if the average Icelander did not quite have the same appetite as the Norse god. In a less fanciful example, the Laxdaila saga from the mid-14th century makes clear in its description of a feast that nothing was spared, for means were plentiful. The feast was a brave one, and the guests were seen off with good gifts on leaving. In Baradarsaga Snæfellsnes, from the early 14th century, the description of a wedding feast mentions that horse and human meat were offered to the giants in attendance. Fermented shark doesn't sound so bad anymore, does it? While, quote, food suitable for humans was offered to the other guests. 
Thorablot festivities involve an abundance of traditional Icelandic food that Thor would be proud to dig into. These recipes were historically associated with survival during the harsh winter months. As such, they often include fermented and preserved items such as haukar, fermented shark, surmatur, soured and fermented food, and various types of pickled fish and meats. The feast is accompanied by singing, dancing, and traditional games, creating a festive atmosphere that anyone can enjoy, whether you're paying homage to a Norse god, remembering a long-dead Finnish king, or just feeling relieved to make it through another year. While Thorablot draws inspiration from historical practices and the challenges of surviving in the Icelandic winter, the modern celebration is more of a cultural and social event. It provides an opportunity for Icelanders to come together, share traditional foods, and celebrate their cultural identity. Many businesses, organizations, and individuals host Thorblot events, making it a widespread and cherished tradition in contemporary Icelandic society. Cherished though it may be, the Thorblot meal is one you can smell before you get through the door. The sharp tang of pickled herring on the table mingles with an earthy, all-encompassing tartness of haukar, a pungent and unforgettable taste that connects us to a past where survival demanded resourcefulness. American chef and world traveler Anthony Bourdain famously called haukar the worst thing he'd ever eaten, but the dry bitterness of many of these dishes is a reminder of the resilience of Iceland's people. Near the edge of the inhabitable world, they found sustenance where others saw only famine, using every part of every animal they could. Their spirits encourage you to eat a little more, for spring is still a long time away, in the flickering shadows behind the dinner table. If the stinging smells and soft textures of soured foods are too much, you can happily tuck into roasted meat, bread, a mug of beer, or Iceland's signature brennevin, a clear spirit which is bracing and herbal on the tongue. Gunnar Karl is especially proud to feature a whole roasted lamb's head, which is an important part of any Thorblod meal, on Dill's menu. For me, it's satisfying that not only are we honoring the tradition, but we are also using something you don't see in restaurants worldwide. And it's a way of telling the story of the lamb in Icelandic history. Icelandic livestock today is directly descended from the animals brought to Iceland by the original settlers. They are allowed to roam freely during the summer months, and unlike livestock raised in feed yards, they don't need antibiotics or vaccines. Icelanders learned a hard lesson in 1855 when four lambs were imported from England to improve the breed. The lambs carried scab, a disease against which their Icelandic counterparts had no defense. It was the hot-button political issue of 1859, as various members of Parliament debated the best course of action. Should they try to treat the sheep who contracted the disease and hope for the best? Or was it safer to exterminate any sheep who fell ill to ensure that the disease would not spread? In the end, Icelandic farmers were forced to kill a huge number of sheep, which greatly impacted the food supply and economy of the small nation. Gunnar Karl continues to expand on the beauty of a roasted lamb's head. In this one dish, we can teach our diners about the Icelandic lamb, how it came here, and why it's special. We also teach them the story of the recipe, the tradition of boiling or singeing the lamb's head. And we also show how to use more parts of the lamb than just the fillet or the shank. So you're ticking a lot of boxes. 
accompanying the palate cleansing and sinus clearing dishes, you'll see rutbreith, a dark rye bread that can be baked in the geothermal grasp of the earth if the oven is uncooperative. Its origins trace back to a time when the harsh Icelandic winters demanded ingenuity. Slicing through the dense loaf releases whispers of steam like those from the earth itself, a testament to the symbiotic relationship between Iceland's kitchens and the volcanic landscape. Gunnar Karl emphasizes the importance of preserving these traditions while embracing innovation. His approach reflects the dynamism of Icelandic cuisine, where ancient recipes meet contemporary techniques, creating a unique and evolving food culture. For him, it's always about what unites us at the dinner table, rather than whatever ingredients or recipes may divide us. Never let the search for some idea of authenticity stand in the way of a good meal, he tells me. Personally, I don't feel there are a lot of dishes that are Icelandic per se, he says, smiling across a steel-topped work table in a hidden corner of the restaurant. Around us, staff bustle back and forth, unloading bottle after bottle of wine for dinner service. One could talk about Icelandic meat soup, kjotsuppa. You can make a meat soup wherever you are in the world, but it's probably never going to taste the same because of the unique flavors of the Icelandic lamb. Even some traditions that we do here, most of them, are done in a very similar way around the world. His experiences with Dill, which in 2009 became the first restaurant in Iceland to earn a Michelin star, and more recently earned a Michelin green star, a special commendation for sustainable practices, have honed his commitment to Icelandic ingredients and food-making traditions. With the arrival of the new Nordic cuisine movement around the year 2000, there was a renewed focus on fresh ingredients and sustainable practices, which excited Gunnar He was happy to focus on ingredients available in Northern Europe until the financial crash in 2008. Everything we had been importing from the Nordic countries doubled in price, and so it became very unsustainable to use all those ingredients. So we started focusing more and more on Iceland, because the prices were not going up as fast here, and because I did still want to use Nordic ingredients. So it became more and more Icelandic with time. With every bite, traditional Icelandic foods take the eater on a journey through time, savoring the essence of a land that has weathered storms and embraced its roots. Thus, the Epicurean adventure that began with hard-scrabble settlers determined to make a life in Iceland has ended up here, with a culinary renaissance that echoes the resilience and practicality of Iceland itself. The Thorblot table is a testament to the indomitable spirit that turned adversity into a symphony of flavors that grows with every passing day more and more Icelandic. Well, thank you for sharing your article today, Beth. Mm-hmm. Um, so real quick. Um, so this name, Thorablot, Thoramatur, uh, you know, like we might hear this word Thori, Thora a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like maybe you can just quickly break that down. So like, what is Thoramatur? What's Thoramatur? And like, where, where does that word come from again? Okay, well, the deal with Thorblot and Thormatur is uh, they're not actually sure etymologically where this uh, name came from. It could be in reference to Thor, the god of uh, rain and thunder and growing things in Norse myth and folklore. Or it could be uh, a reference to a long past Danish, Finnish, sorry, king, uh, who was also named Thor. 
But so this Thori word does come from the old medieval Icelandic calendar, as far as I understand it? Yes. And so like this was a month, right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. So in between um, Christmas and the next, or Yol, as it was called, and the next holiday, which would have been in the spring, uh, they wanted to celebrate and sort of remind themselves what they were working towards by having a bonfire and a feast and a celebration of some kind. Uh, and so... Unfortunately, because it was so late in the year, they hadn't gotten to the new food stores that would be coming in the spring. And they had sort of run through a majority of food stores that were available in the winter by the mm. time they get all the way down to a very, very cold January. <laughs> uh, they had to sort of make do with what they could. And so we get a lot of soured, pickled sort of flavors as a result. Yeah, it's maybe also worth quickly mentioning to listeners that, so this food, Thoramatur, that's served at Thoramblot, the festival, it's not necessarily all pickled and fermented. So, <laughs> so, so this would be called surmatur, uh, which is like fermented or like literally sour foods. Um, but, you know, there are, for instance, like potatoes and just like lamb on flatbread often at, uh, at Thoramblot festivals. Um, but yes, this more exotic stuff, the fermented stuff is very often uh you know what kind of maybe gives Icelandic cuisine a bad rap perhaps oh absolutely <laughs> yeah you can find lots of videos on YouTube of people who are sort of experimenting or trying uh, Icelandic tra traditional foods for the first time uh, even the younger generation of Iceland can sometimes wrinkle their nose at it um, but normally what you have is um, some very proud Icelanders who say oh come on it's not so bad <laughs> or whenever I have a cold I just have a little bit of haukar <laughs> and some brennevin and I'm just cleared right up <laughs> so you know what, there are so many uses for Thormater you know <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, uh, I think one of the interesting things that you tried to do in your piece is just to kind of show that, you know, there is something more there than just the kind of uh, shock value, maybe, of Helkart. I mean, I'm sure that we've all uh, maybe seen a YouTube video of an adventurous tourist or something mm -hmm. like that uh, trying one of these foods, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but, you know, one, there is an interesting history there. And two, you know, I mean... Is some of this food delicious? Uh, Absolutely. What What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I love slauter, which is a kind of um, sausage, sort of like a blood pudding, similar to the English dish, if you've ever tried that. And uh, so it's not all scary. This is just what we like to impress the tourists with, you know, <laughs> look how manly we are. And this is going to put hair on your chest, even if you're a lady. And <laughs> all these sorts of ideas that we have about quote-unquote Viking food. Um, but what always brings me back to my love of cuisine and food studies and history is that... Um, the incredible survival of the people to make things work here, despite not having what perhaps the culinary specialists in France or Italy, places that had huge abundance of food and they could really start to play around with sauces and make interesting flavors and all kinds of things happen. Um, Iceland didn't get to do that until very recently. So we end up getting sort of stuck in this idea that our flavors are not as interesting, not as delicious. 
And that's just not true, uh, because even though we haven't had as much time as other nations to develop our food culture, uh, we have lots of things that we can be really proud of that especially mean even more in our current time of environmental concern and looking to the future. We have beautiful fresh fish. Uh, we have all kinds of herbs and things that grow in Iceland normally. Um, really lovely things that we can start to put in our dishes and taste in every meal. So that's great. Something that I always think of when I think of like Thoramatur and Thoraplot is... You know, like, like the ways in which <laughs> um, suffering often brings people closer together. Like, like it's often kind of a bonding experience to oh. do something bad together. You know, I mean, like, like maybe that's going on a long hike and it's really hard and you get like totally soaked and wet or something. Oh, yeah. And then you're like best friends afterwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I mean, like to me, there definitely does seem to be something about the communal consumption of pungent foods uh, that seems to really kind of um, bring out the national character. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yes. Um, there's a scholar named Jan Asman, who is uh, German, I believe. And he has a lovely bunch of theories where he talks about how when we, when we think about culture, we think about us versus them. And it's always who is, who is the us and who is them. And so when you think of Iceland, it's like, ah, these really tough people who can survive these amazing <laughs> flavors that just did dance on your tongue, <laughs> mm. full of vim and vinegar, you know, those are the Icelanders and everyone else, um, maybe they're just not as tough. Yeah. <laughs> So to play devil's advocate, maybe somebody who doesn't appreciate the flavors of Thoramatur uh, as much might ask the question, you know, these days. So, you know, obviously Thoramatur in some sense was just a technology. It was a way mm -hmm. to preserve food. Uh, now we have things like freezers and preservatives. <laughs> uh, why does this tradition continue? Well, any time that we can look back to the past, and as Gunnar Karl of Dill was saying, he likes to think about those things, to think about why we do the things that we do, either traditionally speaking or now in the modern day. And as he pointed out, it's okay to let go of some things that you just don't find delicious, mm. but you can always try them, experiment, and maybe you will find something that you like. I mean, the Icelanders lived like this for hundreds of years, so they they must have had something going for them, right? <laughs> we got to find out what it was. Hmm. And so I also thought it was kind of interesting how, well, you know, so like so often things that we think are like very deep in the national past are actually a little bit more recent than we often think. Right. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> very often like the kind of process of like nation and identity formation kind of hap happens during an independent struggle, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so on the one hand, like Thorblot, Thoramatur kind of presents itself as this ancient tradition. And yet, I, I mean, I think in some ways it's fair to say that it is a somewhat recent, uh, <laughs> yes. maybe not invention, but like rediscovery or like the interest has kind of grown again recently. For sure. Yeah, this is one of those ones um, when I was doing the research for the article, even I was surprised because I thought that I understood what Thorbrot was all about. And even I was surprised to find that uh, it was 
only fairly recently, you know, speaking historically, <laughs> um, happening and in Copenhagen, no less. So um, it's it's really good to notice that um, when I mentioned the romantic period and the nationalistic period in the article, um, that was an amazing time for Iceland because uh, people in politics and in society here at the time were getting very excited and passionate about what it means to be Iceland. You know, they they were um, doing things like, uh, by that time, Thingvitlir, uh, our place of the Althing meeting, had been abandoned for you know decades at that point because it had become very run down. Mm. People figured that despite our tradition, it was nicer to meet inside, out of the wind, for example. <laughs> and so they started to really advocate for returning to Thingvitlir to hold parliament meetings, even though... Um, Reykjavik had become the center of Iceland by that point, more or less. And it was just because they they felt this great spirit of the past resided there. And if we wanted to truly embrace what it means to be Icelandic, we needed to be there at Thingvetlir on the parliament plane. Well, that's actually a great segue into my next thought, um, because so... Um, in the 1950s, there was this restaurant called Neustith, um, and uh, it was kind of famous for really kind of solidifying the Thoroblot menu. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, so like we did have uh, this like kind of revival of Thoroblot like during the independence movement, like in the late 19th century. But I mean, like really like the thing that people eat today and they consider to be Thoroblot and Thoromatur like came from this restaurant, Neustith. And I mean, like, really, like, where this kind of came from was, you know, like, like the 1950s were and like the immediate kind of post-war period in Iceland was the time Mm -hmm. when urbanism really started kind of taking off in a way that it hadn't before. And, you know, I mean, for the entire history of Iceland, I mean, obviously it had been a rural agrarian society. And it was just, you know, like in these immediate post-war years when people really started kind of realizing what they had as they were about to lose it is maybe one way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, like, like you had this whole kind of solidification of the tradition, Mm -hmm. like, like, like right at the moment when Iceland starts kind of becoming an urban society. So, you know, like, like that's kind of an interesting dynamic because, you know, like right as Reykjavik is kind of building up and kind of becoming the center of Iceland that it is today. That's also the moment when people start kind of looking back at the traditions, you know, maybe trying to kind of preserve something of like rural farm life, even as they're living in Reykjavik. And so, you know, I think, I think like from my perspective, you know, like Thoroblot and Thoromatur is also just as much, like not about like tradition and modernity, but also like the kind of urban and rural dynamic in Iceland. And like, obviously those two kind of graft onto each other in some way, but. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, aside from just the impact of the world wars period on the whole world, you know, culturally the loss of life and all those things uh, that changed the way that countries operated from day to day for decades afterwards. I mean, here in Iceland, you have to remember we're essentially 12 people in a hot dog stand. So (laughs) it was very much felt. And um, the influence after Operation Fork, when the British occupied Iceland and then were replaced by the Americans uh, because it was such a convenient refueling station on the way 
to Europe, uh, people were genuinely worried that the Icelandic culture would suffer because of this. Uh, they called it the situation. Mm. Um, they were worried about uh, Iceland, Iceland's unique culture and language and things like that just disappearing under you know this new onslaught of fabulous, fun things coming over from Britain and then America. I can um, unfortunately confirm that our recording studio, uh, the window is indeed in view of a hot dog stand. <laughs> <laughs> you got to have it, man. It's required. State law. Uh, so on a lighter note, um, travelers to Iceland this time of year uh, in February uh, might notice that in grocery stores, uh, there are these big plastic tubs uh, and these tubs are there to seal in the smell. Isn't that right? <laughs> Oh, yes. You can definitely smell it coming. Let's just say that. And of course, there's always those stories of people who try to take things like Haukar home with them. And, you know, if there's a little bit of a leak in your packaging or something, you know, the entire plane might be affected. <laughs> I, I think the story that I heard was that uh, the entire plane had to be emptied and aired out before it could be used and flown again. Um it is an experience. Let's say that. How cattle is, you know, that's why we say you got to be tough. It's not for the weak. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for talking today, Beth. Absolutely. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication in Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.